This is the East TraumaCast. Welcome to our next edition of the TraumaCast. I'm Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Before I introduce our guests, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous, unrestricted educational grant in support of the East Online Education Committee. Now on to our TraumaCast. We're recording on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and as we do introductions, not only will you all let the audience know who you are and where you're from, but I'd also like to know your favorite holiday dish that you're going to enjoy tomorrow, even if that means it's the mashed potatoes from the cafeteria. As I highlighted in our last episode, the online education committee members interested in hosting the TraumaCast will be joining us. Today, Lauren Dudas, a trauma surgeon from West Virginia University, will be our host. Lauren has invited expert guests in whole blood transfusion, a topic that, frankly, I don't know much about, and I'm really looking forward to learning. As our new host, Lauren, we're going to start with you for introductions. Please let us know who you are, what you do, and what are you going to be enjoying tomorrow? <laughs> All right. I'm Lauren Dudas. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon from West Virginia University. I hope that I'll be enjoying some of the green bee casserole tomorrow. I think I could eat the whole thing by myself. <laughs> I actually already made my green bean casserole sitting in the fridge waiting to go in the oven. <laughs> the old school, like, French's onion, yeah. like, can <laughs> of green beans. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, Don Jenkins returns as one of our favorite guests. Don, in, uh, in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know you, would you please introduce yourself? Let us know what you're up to and what are you going to enjoy tomorrow? Yep. Uh, my name is Don Jenkins. I'm a trauma critical care surgeon from UT Health in uh, San Antonio. Had the uh, great opportunity to uh, be the president of East for a year, about a decade ago. And since that uh, time, we've uh, invested a lot of energy and mileage uh, into uh, establishing the whole blood uh, as, a, as a thing. In terms of tomorrow, it's got to be the stuffing, uh, stuffing and gravy. Just there's no replacing that. So is your family like a stick the stuffing inside the bird or, or do you oh, make absolutely. a stuffing in a pot? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And Dan Grabo, welcome to the TraumaCast. Uh, if you would please introduce yourself and let us know a bit about you and, and what are you going to have tomorrow? Thanks, Carrie. My name is Dan Grabo. I'm a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon from West Virginia and partners with Lauren. It's great to be here. So thank you for that. I'm looking forward to some smoked turkey tomorrow. Uh, since we moved to West Virginia, we found a, a farm up the road from us who provides us with smoked turkeys, which is a delicious treat uh, we found here in West Virginia. So. Couldn't get those in LA, huh? <laughs> no, not in Los Angeles, no. Not so that much. sounds amazing. Dan, what did you do in the military? I was a Navy trauma surgeon. I, was, I ran a Navy trauma training center at LA County uh, for about five years before I got out and I deployed to Kandahar as the chief of trauma. That was one of my uh, deployments as well as some rotations and uh, deployments on aircraft carriers. And Don, what was your service? What did you do? So I spent a little, little over 24 years in the uh, United States uh, Air Force, uh, learned to speak Army in the war. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we did this little thing uh, where we uh, set up a trauma system uh, for all the disparate units across uh, two countries uh, for the for the war, uh, the estimate is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, over 10,000 uh, soldiers probably alive today uh, who wouldn't otherwise be based upon the change in mortality from pre-system to post-system. Uh, just a matter of getting the right uh, individual to the right resources, which is uh, one would think that our Department of Defense would have that little uh, thing uh, like in a, in a playbook, but mm, nope. No, they did not. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us and uh, for taking some time out of the 
holiday week. We have a really great panel. Lauren, I'm going to turn the TraumaCast over to you. All right. Don, can you start us out by explaining what is whole blood? So uh, whole blood is the uh, unit of uh, blood the donor you know, sits in the chair and donates. It's got a little uh, tiny bit of preservative uh, in it, but they don't separate it into its component parts. It just goes uh, from uh, the donor to the fridge, and then it undergoes uh, all the same testing uh, that your red blood cells would undergo. Uh, when we draw whole blood, draw exclusively low uh, antibody titer, uh, O positive whole blood as our main uh, donation type and unit. The majority of the people in this country are O uh, blood type. The uh, negatives, the RH negatives uh, comprise uh, about 7% of the population, and that's scattered amongst the A's, the B's, and the O's. So, uh, therefore, most everyone, more, more than 90% of the population, is RH positive. Uh, and that's how we can uh, get away with uh, uh, doing that. So, I guess my, my first question is, why did we go to separating the components? Why didn't we just stick with whole blood from the get-go? So, the history of uh, components uh, separation dates back into the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, we started to uh, poison patients with chemotherapy agents, uh, harming their bone marrow, causing thrombocytopenia. And so the hematologists and the blood bankers got together to try to figure out uh, how to separate platelets and what uh, combination of uh, temperature and agitation or no agitation uh, would provide the biggest bump in the platelet count for the longest duration of time uh, in these uh, uh, chemotherapy thrombocytopenic uh, patients. And so that's when the breaking uh, things down into the components uh, started. We also uh, began to uh, treat uh, hemophiliacs and they don't need necessarily whole blood because they're not bleeding. And uh, unfortunately, we literally threw the baby out with the bathwater and went all on full component and got rid of uh, whole blood altogether. The first 60 or so years of transfusion in this country was exclusively with whole blood. And uh, sadly, we're now two generations away from uh, experience uh, and knowledge of this uh, because we just haven't been able to uh, get access to uh, whole blood or train uh, to. But uh, Dan and I, have a, have a shared experience in terms of uh, the only source of platelets in the combat zone is walking around in the veins of the other soldiers and Marines. And so to administer a, a life-saving uh, blood transfusion that involves platelets required uh, the use of whole blood. So by necessity, picked that back up and uh, we saw remarkable ability of whole blood to resuscitate a badly injured, bleeding, hypotensive patient and decided we need to bring that back home. How do hospitals get blood? How do they pay for it? Why wouldn't everyone jump on board with this? Why would we stick with components? Is there a financial underlying drive to how this whole system gets laid out? It does make the blood bank team a little uh, a little crazy uh, because it's nearly a dual inventory that they have to maintain. And you could envision how a bag of red stuff we get mixed up with another bag of red stuff, thinking that it's red cells when it's actually whole blood or vice versa. Uh, and so we had to, we created some special, like you could see it from the from the end of the room uh, tags to put on uh, the whole blood units so that easily easily denote them. 
Uh, same thing is happening with our cold platelet program because a platelet is a platelet is a platelet. Uh, and so we have to uh, spe you know, specifically uh, designate uh, them so that it's easy to be seen. Uh, when we started, uh, the cost of the whole blood unit uh, was more than the three-part component uh, transfusion. Uh, and our waste sat at about 11% because we set these limits on ourselves as to who could get it and how much they could get and where they could get it. Once we lifted all the restrictions, the waste is now less than 1%. We haven't lost a unit of whole blood this entire calendar year. It's, it's all been transfused uh, to, to our patients. Uh, and because the, of the decrease in waste, the cost is now uh, less than the three components uh, put together uh, to give the whole blood. So there is some financial advantage uh, to it uh, once you figure out your management scheme. I think we're still at, because of our restrictions, we're still at not showing so much of a financial advantage at this point in time. We're just still trying to figure out how much we need. And we certainly hit the uh, hit the wall recently where we're starting to use less blood, um, showing some, so to say, wastage. And because of that, we're uh, starting to show that we're maybe losing some uh, based on money. We're still showing that we're spending more for the whole blood than we should be at this point in time. So, But uh, our group is not so much focusing on that. We have a good group. Uh, the blood bank is very much... Uh, committed to growing the program, realizing that trauma, especially in this area, is, is certainly cyclical with the weather and uh, we're in the downtime. And they they certainly saw the heavy usage over the summer months. Um, and they know that we'll increase our purchasing of the whole blood during the, the summer again when it comes back. So. As we've transitioned back into whole blood, a lot of our literature has come from military setting. And now we're trying to generalize that to the civilian sector. Can you talk a little bit about how some of the military settings might differ from some of the things we do? Sure. And I think uh, Don kind of alluded to uh, some of that. What we had in, in theater was certainly uh, prior to cold stored whole blood and the cold stored platelet concept, the components were stored cold, but we didn't have platelets. So certainly when we went to think about one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation, we only had two of those components, the uh, packed cells and the plasma, able to give a massive transfusion scenario in theory, but we didn't have the platelets, so to say. But what we did have in, in our soldiers, our Marines, our airmen, and our sailors walking around was fresh whole blood. So the concept was, is activate a walking blood bank, rapidly collect pre-screened donors from your, your unit, your combat unit from continental United States who had been pre-screened. We know who they are, uh, what their blood type was, and we can send out a message over the loudspeaker, so to say, and get the uh, donors to come to the medical treatment facility and donate fresh whole blood. So we're able to give our bleeding trauma patients fresh whole blood and give them the components all in one resuscitation bag, so to say. And with that, we saw tremendous resuscitation capacity with the fresh whole blood transfusions in the military. I had completely forgotten about the big voice, uh, this loudspeaker system. Anybody that used to watch MASH, uh, you'd be familiar with that uh, speaker they had up on the telephone pole that they would call out uh, announcements. But at the end, they never said, that is all. <laughs> yeah. You talk about a, a fresh whole blood in a walking blood bank with service members who are pre-screened, but they're pre-screened for their blood type. How did you all ensure that it was safe? I mean, right now the Red Cross screens all of our products. Do you just say that we just have to accept that this is a risk and we're trying to save your life right now? 
pre-deployment, the uh, soldiers are all tested for a number of things before you can leave to go to the combat zone to include infectious diseases. If they follow the rules of engagement, they can't get an infectious disease. Uh, that's an incredibly important point because that's why it works in the military, right? So we can pre-screen, test, ensure safety once they you know, get on a plane, get on a boat, whatever get over into theater and that's why we can theoretically ensure safety for the deployment theater uh, but you can't necessarily say okay uh, there's a big explosion in morgantown west virginia let's activate a walking blood bank but we pre-screened half the population in morgantown let's just activate the walking blood bank there's no uh, safety mechanism for that that's why it won't work in the civilian world for the most part the rest of the answer to the question is that about once a week, uh, batches of uh, specimens uh, were sent from Iraq and Afghanistan to Germany. Uh, we're in the laboratory up there. They screened all of the donors' blood. Uh, we knew who donated what unit to which individual, uh, such that if there were a positive infectious disease test in Germany on that donor's blood, uh, that we could track down that casualty through the system uh, be it uh, in the uh, National Capital region, out in uh, San Diego or in San Antonio, uh, and address uh, any uh, transfusion transmissible disease issues at that stage. To the best of my knowledge, there were three individuals out of uh, about 10,000 units of whole blood administered who ended up with a, a potentially transfusion transmissible disease in all of those cases, those individuals got blood at multiple locations from multiple sources who was never able to be tracked back to a, a ultra-fresh walking whole blood bank uh, donor. You mentioned earlier about low titer. For those of us who aren't familiar with the lingo of whole blood, can you explain what you mean and is there a universally accepted level? Yeah, so checking antibody levels in, in blood uh, is a little tricky, mysterious business uh, because there is no set method uh, for doing it. Different uh, blood banks, different laboratories do it in different ways. It usually is a dilutional uh, event. Uh, and uh, 1 to 256 is uh, considered to be uh, a safe level of uh, antibodies in those uh, specimens. Uh, the folks in Pittsburgh uh, really went overboard to protect their patients. Uh, they got that down to one in 50, uh, which is uh, really no, no, you know, practically no antibodies of any kind. Again, we've never seen, we didn't do titering on the whole blood in the, in the, in the combat zone. Uh, we haven't seen uh, any transfusion uh, reactions uh, to date in the whole blood program in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, in Pittsburgh, in San Antonio, Bergen, Norway, the Israeli Defense Forces in Israel. Uh, just haven't seen any transfusion reactions uh, to date. I do want to talk quite a bit about um, getting a program started. In 2016, we were lucky enough to host Dr. Uh, Philip Spinella and Alan Murdoch on this same topic. Can you guys talk about what you think are benefits to whole blood or what we've learned about in the past four years? So one of the things that I would uh, say, and these are magic words uh, when it comes down to uh, your question, Lauren, about getting a program started, uh, what, that when you uh, talk to your blood bank team, and you mentioned the word donor exposures, that's like kryptonite. 
uh, and they just buckle at their knees uh, when you say, well, you know, if we gave the patient a unit of whole blood, that would be a single donor exposure versus giving them one to one to one, which would be three donor exposures. It's kind of like part of their oath that they take when they when they turn into blood bankers uh, is, uh, is to uh, promise to limit donor exposure. And so when you use those magical words, that really that really makes a difference. And if you think about it, I mean, it's pretty it's it's kind of surgeon proof in a way you bleed whole blood, you replace whole blood. I mean, that's I don't know. Mom, I even say anesthesia proof. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's the green bean casserole right there. Yeah. yeah, I think that's one of the keys. It certainly gives us the opportunity to ensure that we've achieved that one to one to one resuscitation ratios right off the bat. And I think we all struggle, whether we're uh, cognizant of it or not, when we're in the trauma bay or like uh, Lauren said, with anesthesia, when we're in the operating room. The plasma, the yellows kind of seem to fall off and it's a high amount of reds. And I think the, the whole blood certainly helps us fix that problem right off the bat. So I think that's some something we can certainly hang our hat on when we try and discuss this with our, our colleagues around the around the trauma bay table, around the operating room table uh, and try and encourage them to at least think about it and look at it. One thing that we've talked about a number of times on trauma cast, and it seems like it, it, a lot of M&Ms is the use of TEG. Because there's one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation and then tag-based resuscitation. Do you think if, if we did whole blood resuscitation, we would just eliminate the need for tag to be part of our transfusion plan? So I think that in the early resuscitation scheme, you got a patient that meets your criteria to be transfused. Uh, most of us are just going to react and do the transfusions. I think subsequent rounds of transfusion uh, probably should be targeted by TIG, uh, number one. Number two, uh, the relatively limited amount of whole blood available at any one institution and the restrictions that uh, the blood bank potentially places on uh, the clinicians in terms of what they can use. I've, I've seen places where, uh, for instance, Mayo up in Rochester, they collect a whole blood unit a couple of three times a week. There are days at a time they have none. They, we had an artificial limit of four units of whole blood per patient when we first started our program because they weren't sure what the inventory management was going to look like. Subsequently, we've lifted all those restrictions and I've uh, got 36 units of whole blood sitting in our blood bank uh, as of this morning. The uh, uh, Army program uh, does not participate with the civilian blood bank uh, team here in San Antonio. They draw their own blood from their own active duty and retired population. Uh, they uh, had used a different preservative that had the shelf life of 21 days. Uh, they were wasting a lot of blood sending it uh, from San Antonio to the combat zone because by the time it would get to where it was going, they had about five days to use it. So they changed the preservative, got the shelf life date out to day 35, and uh, there's been a decrease in the uh, need to send uh, because the uh, shelf life is just longer. Therefore, there's also a decrease in waste. But uh, even at Bamsey, uh, Brookhart Medical Center, uh, they have a limit of, I think it's four or six uh, units uh, per patient, and they will only allow it to be uh, transfused while the patient is in the trauma area. Once they leave the trauma area, then it's components only. Uh, these are all artificial rules of engagement. Uh, I don't uh, necessarily uh, agree with them. I don't disagree that you have to uh, have an active uh, uh, blood management 
uh, scheme in place so that you can manage your inventory appropriately. Uh, it would be just as wasteful to use a two-week-old uh, unit of whole blood while throwing three units of red blood cells that are going to outdate by the end of the day in the trash. And so I do think that we want to use uh, every drop of uh, the gift that the donors have uh, provided. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm willing to work with the uh, blood bank team uh, on those things. And once they get confidence uh, and the and experience, uh, they have really loosened things up quite a lot. In fact, there's way more to that story I can add in here in a little bit. So do you work with your blood bank on a daily basis and decide, you know, who is going to get what kind of units or is it based on need and the trauma surgeon just says what they want? More than daily. But who makes a call? Is it the blood bank decides which patient based on certain criteria gets whole blood versus components? Or is it the trauma surgeon gets to make the call? This one's getting whole blood. This one's okay with just components. So um, the way that we uh, do things is that we have a highest tier trauma team activation uh, blood bank responds. We don't have a satellite blood bank fridge up and running yet in our trauma area, but that'll happen in about two weeks. That, that refrigerator will be stocked only with whole blood. When the blood bank comes, they bring two coolers with four units of whole blood each. Uh, so the surgeons don't even get a choice. They're gonna give whole blood to a bleeding trauma patient. Once the patient gets to the OR, NGO suite, ICU, uh, then uh, the, the, the call is made uh, by the resuscitating team, be that anesthesia or the surgeons. Um, and it's, it, it's taken a turn for the surreal, quite honestly, in the past seven months. Uh, there are blood shortages everywhere in this country. Uh, back in July timeframe, uh, when COVID was really peaking in New York City, uh, New York Red Cross had an unfilled order for a thousand units of red blood cells that no one in the country could help them with. Uh, and so we are managing on a half a day's worth of inventory uh, at our regional blood bank. Three days makes them a little uncomfortable. They really like to be four days worth of uh, worth of uh, average use uh, rate of uh, inventory. We're 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 counting on donations made today to transfuse tomorrow. Uh, and uh, there's a combination of things uh, that has gone uh, into this. Uh, some of it is the uh, people don't want to get near other people. Uh, they were told, if you're not essential, stay at home. We had to have the, the mayor come on TV and tell blood donors that they were essential and that they needed to leave their home and, and go and, and uh, uh, donate blood. Between April and the end of the calendar year, we had over 1,000 blood drives canceled in the San Antonio area. These would be usually held at businesses and schools. Uh, but because of COVID, they did not want people to, and they, they just canceled. And uh, we just put out another emergency plea uh, earlier this week uh, because it is a horrible problem and everyone's facing it. So when we make the call to transfuse someone, uh, it's almost 100% of the time we get a call from a blood bank pathologist to say, why? Are you sure? Why two? We're just going to send you one. 
Well, we don't think since the patient doesn't have that vital sign abnormalities that you should transfuse anything right now. Uh, it's it's really taken a, a, a huge uh, turn that I'm I'm very unfamiliar with this territory, quite honestly. Dan, are you experiencing the same thing in uh, West Virginia? Are you having the same kind of blood shortages that uh, Don talked about? No, but I think what's really interesting, if we could, you know, kind of talk about this uh, in a similar in this in the same topic, is uh, the differences in a mature whole blood system like Don has in San Antonio and what well, we're just starting out in West Virginia. And, you know, we're a rural, rural system, you know, uh, you know, only 40% of the traumas, but, you know, a good 60 some percent of the trauma deaths are in the rural system. So we are, are a big voice in the trauma world, although maybe not so loud, but we're still there. Uh, we're certainly not mature like uh, like what Don has in San Antonio, but we started out and when we started out, we brought Don in, you know, he came in and helped us. He came in as our guest uh, visiting professor. He was involved in, you know, webcasts with us to speak with our blood bank, give us guidance. Um, and we were actually, and to that, the COVID point, we were actually supposed to start our whole blood uh, system in March. But because of donor shortages, we got delayed. The, the Red Cross is our supplier. We couldn't could not get whole blood until August. Uh, so we were on about a five six month delay before we were actually able to start our whole blood program. Um, so what's what what we have going on is we allotted for six units a week that we purchased. We have a strict limit that uh, we only give it to adults, priority one or highest tier traumas. They get two units max uh, that they're allowed to uh, be transfused based on strict criteria. Uh, they have to show physiologic signs of uh, hemorrhage uh, as well as uh, identify identifiable source of hemorrhage. Um, and then from there, it's uh, after those two units are exhausted, there's no more units of whole blood for the trauma patient. They go on to component resuscitation, either a massive transfusion activation or a TEG direct resuscitation. Uh, directed by the trauma attending. So very strict uh, as far as what we have. Now, when we first started it, we were still in our trauma season. And if uh, Don remembers trauma, you know, when trauma season was in Afghanistan, you know, it was certainly in the warm weather months and they shut it down in the cold weather months. Well, it's just like in Afghanistan here, uh, cold weather slows it down. Um, and it's not a war zone. It's just that everyone's inside, no one's crashing their ATVs and whatnot. So trauma season has slowed down here significantly. But when we first started in August, we ran out of whole blood in the first two weeks. Um, and we actually had to increase and purchase more whole blood uh, just to get through uh, based on our new protocols. Um, and now we're actually not wasting it. We're giving it back. Uh, we have an excess of whole blood here. Uh, we're giving it back because our trauma volumes are back to normal. They're not down, they're just back to normal for the time of the year. Uh, so Lauren, Lauren knows that once you know the first frost hits, so to say, or the, the cold weather hits, uh, the holiday season hits, people stay inside, uh, they don't go outside, they don't crash and whatnot. But once the warm weather hits and boating season starts and ATV season starts and the outdoors start, we're at max capacity and we need the whole blood. So we're gonna have a cyclical use of our whole blood. Uh, different, but uh, very interesting to hear 
I think, a well-established old blood system like Don has in San Antonio and what they're going through. And then what we're starting with here and just you know, starting out and then seeing the cyclical nature of uh, rural trauma as well as, you know, time of the year type thing, too. So, Dan, can you talk a little bit about how uh, you got the whole blood program started or some of the barriers you encountered? So that's that's a great point. It wasn't so much um, convinced them of the value of whole blood. In fact, I was I sit on the blood utilization committee, like a lot of trauma surgeons, acute care surgeons sit on it. You know, we represent we're the ones that get, hey, there was this massive transfusion that didn't have the right numbers. Can you look at it? Right. That's what our job is. Um, but part of that was just uh, the uh, head of the blood banking, uh, head of the blood bank came in and said, hey, what do you think about whole blood? I think I can get it for us. I said, that's a great idea. He goes, well, that's great. I want to get it. I think I'm, I'm going to get uh, six units. I'll give some to the helicopter, some to trauma, some to the cardiac and, uh, program. I said, well, wait a second. That's, you know, within a day, there's going to be no whole blood for trauma. So let's figure out a plan, you know, a protocol, who gets the whole blood and all that. So that I didn't know how to do. I knew how it was done in a military world, uh, but I didn't know how it was done in a civilian world. So that's when I called Don. I said, how do you set this up? But we have a willing supplier. We have a, a great group who's interested in bringing it here. But then how do you order it? How much do you get for your, your program? Uh, so that was the biggest thing is just figuring out who to bring in. And that was easy for me because I know Don from our, uh, actually Don and I are from the same hometown area, uh, we went to the same schools and whatnot. And I know some of them, we're probably related some way down the road, I guess. Uh, You're not like, from West Virginia though, right? No, we're from Northeastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. Uh, we're probably cousins, uh, but we both, both went to university of Scranton and, uh, we did our trauma fellowship at Penn. So we're, uh, we're all family up there anyway, both military too, right? So anyway, you know, I called him. I said, can you help me? And without a, you know, there was no hesitancy there. He, you know, got on the plane and showed up here and taught us how to do it. So that was the easy part, getting him here. But then telling the blood bank, you know, we need six units for trauma and we're going to tell you how we're going to do it. So based on what Don had developed in, in Minnesota and as well in San Antonio, we put together our criteria for usage, who was going to get it, adults, priority one traumas, signs of hemorrhage, as well as physiologic response or a response of hemorrhage. Um, and then we limited it, though, based on what the blood bank could supply us uh, with. Uh, they said they could get us four to six units. And we wanted to make sure that we supplied trauma first. Interestingly, we got a um, you know, a six month period to look at that, to say for six months, we're going to look at it and say, this is what we need uh, for trauma. And then based on that, we can give information to the system on how to then resuscitate patients with whole blood within the system and then help the blood bank decide how to buy for or purchase for the helicopters and the other disciplines within the system that want to use whole blood. So that was how we did it here. So then what's ideal? Is ideal we transition to entirely whole blood transfusion? Is ideal that you both mentioned you start with whole blood and then we go to TEG and do component product transfusion? There's no restrictions on any of the resources that you need. What would you like to have? Well, I think Don's going to have a much better answer than I am because he's much better studied on this. 
I think what's ideal for us is understanding that the person who comes in to the trauma bay or the emergency room, and I think we'll find this out too with our follow-up to our initial whole blood for trauma program, is that they come in uncross-matched with signs of hemorrhage uh, and an identifiable source, they get whole blood, probably in a limited quantity, one to two units or try two units, and then they go on to component resuscitation or tech-directed resuscitation based on that until surgical control or angiographic control is uh, achieved. I think that's where we're going to start for now. Um, but more importantly than that, I think we have to understand what you know certain systems are like. We're not the urban center or the center with a short transport time or less than a half an hour. The average transport time to West Virginia, our university hospital is upwards of two hours. So we have all these satellite hospitals, these partners hospitals, critical access hospitals, the helicopters. We need to get this whole blood to them on the helicopters first before we uh, go saying we're going to give unlimited numbers of whole blood within our in our hospital first. They may need we may need to distribute it out to the uh, outlying hospitals to get that initial two units of whole blood out there first uh, before they get it before we go. I don't say crazy, but uh, be very aggressive giving it to you know four to eight units of whole blood to a trauma patient in the hospital. It might be better to have it four to eight units to some critical access hospitals out in the uh, surrounding areas or on the helicopters first. I think we can touch more patients that way. So I really think it depends on the system and the, the hospital itself as to how, they, how you devise your system for whole blood. So let me add a comment uh, in there about that, uh, Dan. Each uh, state regulates their own EMS and there are somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30 states uh, that don't allow ground EMS to uh, administer blood products. Take an exception uh, from state legislature, you know, State Department of Health uh, to make a change in those rules of engagement. Uh, so when we were in, uh, when I was in Rochester, Minnesota, we put whole blood on the helicopter, but we couldn't put it on the Mayo-owned Gold Cross ambulances because of Minnesota statute. Uh, which uh, they're still working on changing. Here in San Antonio, we're one of the lucky states uh, where if the medical director says you can do it, you can do it. And so exactly as you, as you cite, uh, we, we did a little retrospective review of tra transfusion at our trauma center. and looked exclusively at the massive transfusion patient population that initiated massive transfusion on arrival to the trauma center. Uh, over a 32-month uh, block of time, uh, got emergency transfusion in the, in the trauma bay, 125 got massive transfusion over that 32-month block of time. Uh, those getting emergency transfusion on arrival had a death rate of 40%. Those getting their blood volume replaced in a massive transfusion on arrival uh, had a death rate of 75%. Uh, so it was pretty easy to take that story forward and say, hey, guys, we got to put this where the patients need it. We, we got to get it out of the blood bank. and We got to get it on the streets. And so it started out small. Uh, we started out with uh, one helicopter. and We put a little schedule together like the next week and the week after that. Uh, another helicopter here, another helicopter there uh, until we have now two units of uh, whole blood on 13 different helicopters. Uh, in South Texas, that's five different uh, e uh, helicopter EMS agencies. Uh, we've got uh, uh, one unit of whole blood on nine 
EMS supervisor rigs in San Antonio proper. Uh, I've got one unit of whole blood on 16 other EMS rigs not associated necessarily with uh, San Antonio. 13 of them are county level uh, in rural counties uh, uh, out there. And I've got whole blood in a single uh, level three critical access hospital. We had it in two, but they just couldn't find, uh, they didn't have the sweet spot to, to use it and it was going to waste. So far, in the hospital, our average our, our average patient getting emergency transfusion with whole blood uh, gets a mean of three and a half units of, uh, of whole blood. My gut told me we probably needed 20 units on the shelf at the hospital. That has now been exceeded. We're sitting at an inventory of 36 units of whole blood at the, uh, at the hospital. Uh, we're transfusing whole blood, the mean number per month uh, has crept up from the single digits uh, to about 27 a month uh, now uh, are getting whole blood transfusion or going through a little over 150 units a month of, uh, of, of whole blood. In total, we've uh, transfused nearly 700 uh, patients with a little over 2,300 units of uh, whole blood uh, since the program inception two years ago. As of August, we have 55 non-trauma uses uh, that we have written up. Most of those are GI bleed, ruptured AAA, or obstetric uh, hemorrhage. We've got a peripartum hemorrhage uh, protocol with whole blood for uh, placental disorder women. Uh, we're up to 15 women have gotten uh, whole blood transfusion. Uh, again, no, no transfusion reactions, uh, very low uh, consumption of blood products in that patient population. Uh, the only way you can do that is to have an active donor uh, program at the beginning of the calendar year, we had about 3,000 of these pre-tested low antibody titer O positive men donors. Uh, we've got uh, right at about 8,000 of these uh, folks today. Uh, and so they show up by appointment uh, on call as needed. Uh, there's about 170 units of whole blood currently in the system across the hospitals and the, the EMS agencies and at South Texas Blood and Tissue Center. And in fact, uh, unbeknownst to us, but we figured it out in short order, when we were getting into some real tight spots with components, if a patient in the medical ICU uh, or our uh, surgical ICU uh, was uh, in need of component uh, therapy for whatever reason, uh, oftentimes they would give them uh, whole blood in lieu of the uh, components uh, because they just didn't have the components to spare uh, as long as we needed uh, all those components anyway. So the blood bank went from, you know, they didn't want us to give hardly anybody any to anybody uh, and certainly not outside the trauma room to now just giving it out to medical patients. We, transplant patient gets some uh, whole blood uh, not that long ago. And so putting together a manuscript uh, there to look at that utilization uh, of, uh, of whole blood for other than trauma and in lieu of components uh, as a life-saving way of doing things. Uh, in fact, with the shortages that we've had in blood, uh, what they've done is very smartly called upon these special donors, the, the brand of, the, of that program is called Brothers in Arms. Uh, they have called on those Brothers in Arms donors to come in and donate blood just to be used as components. So they're going to separate it out because uh, they don't have enough other donors uh, to keep the inventory where it needs to be kept. We wouldn't have any of that 
uh, happening if uh, if it weren't for this uh, program, quite honestly. So it's been it has been a game changer. Our uh, main uh, blood bank pathologist, when I first met her, the very first trauma meeting we had, multidisciplinary meeting, we got down uh, through the agenda. And when uh, we got to the, the, the line where it said blood bank and this woman behind me uh, spoke up about blood bank issues, I drew the conclusion that this was our blood bank pathologist. And I, when the meeting was over, I, I turned around and said, hey, uh, would you entertain a conversation about whole blood? And her answer was, yes, of course. I, I'll talk about that with you. Everyone knows it's bad for patients. So that's where we started <laughs> in August of 2016. And now she's given whole blood out to uh, the world. Uh, and uh, as of uh, our trauma multidisciplinary meeting, uh, well, we held a special meeting uh, uh, of principals in the in the region because of blood shortages throughout all the hospitals uh, two days ago. Uh, she was the first one to speak up and said, I love whole blood. You mentioned a little bit about within your your own system, how you manage whole blood, but who kind of oversees all that? Are you the one personally keeping track of all that or is the blood bank managing? So we have a medical command center that uh, does all the trauma paging and dispatching, uh, et cetera. So twice a day, uh, they update uh, that that Excel spreadsheet grid so that we know uh, it goes out in a GroupMe app uh, uh, platform uh, at least twice a day. And every time uh, an EMS agency either uses or trades in uh, their whole blood for a new uh, unit of whole blood, uh, the uh, it gets updated so that we have the actual um, expiration dates uh, and we know where those units are. But not unlike uh, Dan's story about running out of whole blood, that's happened to us in the past. A uh, perfect storm of a 4th of July holiday, which happened to fall on a weekend and a bunch of people didn't show up and donate. And uh, we had to call uh, some of the uh, helicopters and EMS agencies to bring their whole blood back and drop it off at the hospital uh, for us to use. That's when we decided we needed to do this active management thing. And uh, thankfully, haven't run out of whole blood uh, since then. And so you can watch the inventory in real time and you know when you're getting in trouble. It's how they manage uh, their expectations with their donors uh, because they call them and ask them, uh, can you come tomorrow? We don't want you to come and donate. You know, we don't want you to call. We'll call you when we need you, uh, sort of a thing. So it's a it's a very actively managed program, and uh, they hold you know some some press conference uh, sort of stuff uh, uh, annually. It makes the uh, uh, foundation, the South Texas Blood and Tissue Foundation uh, Board, happy to see uh, success stories of a uh, young mom who, in a car crash during extrication, loses pulses. Uh, gets a unit of whole blood from the ground EMS agency, gets a unit of whole blood in the back of the helicopter on her way to the hospital, uh, leaves the hospital about 17 days later, uh, having had her uh, spleen embolized and uh, her cervical spine uh, fixed. And then she gets up with her uh, two boys uh, in front of that crowd. Let me just tell you, there's not a dry eye in the house. So you can do this, but it takes an act. It, it doesn't just happen. I'll, I'll just I'll just put it like that. And uh, I wouldn't expect most uh, trauma surgeons to have uh, the working knowledge of the system uh, that I have. This has been by necessity uh, that I've had to learn this stuff and learn to speak blood bank uh, lingo uh, in order to be able to get this uh, done. Uh, I have heard other surgeons uh, in group talk 
uh, in a variety of uh, platforms say, you just tell your blood bank they got to give it to you. It's like, mm, dude, that's no, that's, that's, <laughs> it's America. It's 2020. That's, yeah. that, doesn't go, that doesn't go anywhere. One thing you did mention about uh, giving whole blood to young females, I think this was kind of a educational opportunity when, Dan, when you rolled it out at WVU, but can you talk about how it's safe in a childbearing age? Yeah, when uh, when we had Doc, uh, Don come out, uh, he talked a lot about um, women of childbearing age and whether or not they're, you know, so to say, eligible for whole blood, uh, given the RH status and the uh, possibly for future pregnancies, potential maternal fetal blood mixing, right? So uh, we talked a lot about that and understanding where uh, Don and his group, they just give the blood, understanding that the risk is exceedingly low. And read some of the other papers that they withhold whole blood uh, to women of childbearing age. In fact, there's a recent publication uh, in the past year or so out of the group out of Philadelphia that uh, uh, published their paper. So, you know, we looked at a lot about a lot of that. We actually had our pharmacist and our blood banker call uh, Don's blood bank team and look at how they do it there. And we came up with ours. Um, so anyone, any woman of childbearing age, and we gave anyone 17 to 45 who receive our low titer O positive blood. Uh, we actually get o, o negative blood too sometimes. So we have to look at that and they receive it. Um, we, we have a consult with them the next day. Um, you know, obviously wait, waiting for them you know, to settle down, recover, recuperate a little bit at least have a conversation with them. If they have a desire of future pregnancy, we confirm, you know, blood types and all that. And then based on the amount of blood volume that they receive, we dose either Rogam or Winro to them uh, and provide them with education for future pregnancies. And that was just our policy. Echoing what he said, it's it's not just the trauma surgeon making this decision, right? It's, it's the entire team. We do things, we round as a multidisciplinary team. We're getting blood from the blood bankers. Everyone has to be comfortable with this, right? Um, so if, you know, I know a lot of the trauma surgeons, we were discussing this. We said, well, let's just do what San Antonio does. Let's just do what a, another group does. And if they don't uh, work this up, then it's it's good enough for us. And, you know, that really wasn't sitting too well with the other people at the table. So the pharmacists and the blood bankers really wanted to have a program in place uh, for women of childbearing age. So uh, we had a, we developed a consult team to go see them and talk to them. And, um, you know, it's led by the trauma surgeon, obviously, and we need to make that conversation happen. And um, if they desire future pregnancies and they've received low titer O positive blood, then they uh, they get their Winrow or Rogram dependent on how much blood volume they got. So that was our policy. So when we looked at, uh, when we looked at this, if you look at the demographics of South Texas, uh, the population is about 70% Hispanic and African-American, meaning that the uh, Caucasian uh, group is sitting only uh, in the 25% or so uh, range. What we know, uh, and it's unclear why this occurs, uh, I've not studied it, uh, but <clears throat> uh, people from Asia have a RH negative uh, preponderance of about 1%. In African-Americans and in Hispanics, it's, it's about 7%. In Caucasians, it's about 15 or 16%. Uh, there are certain places, little pockets of, uh, of uh, people in 
parts of Europe that are as high as uh, 40% RH negative rate. So uh, when we looked at that 125 patients getting massive transfusion on arrival, uh, 25 of them were women and half of them were of childbearing potential. Uh, the death rate was uh, 55% in that, in that group. And as per the prediction, there were uh, two, uh, I'm sorry, one RH negative woman out of the 16 of childbearing potential, uh, which puts it right at 7%. Uh, in that uh, nearly 700 patients we've transfused whole blood to so far, uh, we've had four or five uh, RH negative uh, uh, people get uh, O positive uh, whole blood. Uh, two of them were men. One was an older woman. One was a woman of childbearing potential. And we did precisely what Dan said. Uh, it's, uh, it follows a next day consult uh, because as soon as they see uh, that there's a disparity in the patient's blood type with what blood product they received in emergency uh, release fashion, uh, that automatically rings a bell and uh, they uh, come to the bedside and uh, assess the patient, talk with the clinical team uh, the day after, as Dan said, when the dust has uh, settled. So, so far, so good. Uh, as it would turn out that woman uh, of childbearing potential who is RH negative got the O positive uh, whole blood, not only did it save her life, uh, but uh, she uh, said that there was no way uh, she was ever going to have children anyway, so she didn't want to grow again. What do you guys think is on the horizon for whole blood? From my standpoint, I think Centers like ours are going to try and grow to be centers like what Don has. I mean, he's got the system there that's mature. It's uh, a tremendous amount of education and infrastructure and um, teamwork. And that's what we've been trying to just replicate on a smaller level here to take all the lessons learned from the military uh, system as well as a well-established civilian system and put it into practice to capture um, our patient, right? And what do we have to learn from what Don's doing? He, in his system, is that really that, that those rural trauma patients, the, the patient that comes in bleeding in the trauma bay for the most part is what we're looking at, but also that uh, patient transported on a helicopter for the pre-hospital blood as well as that critical access hospital. So if we can start growing uh, this to all the a vast majority trauma centers. I think that's what the future is for whole blood in the civilian world. So uh, I, I agree with uh, what uh, Dan uh, said. I think that uh, there is uh, still uh, some great potential uh, in the transplant uh, community. Uh, it may require a leuco reduction of the uh, whole blood uh, in order to meet the needs of that patient population. But at this time, we have uh, given it to some of those transplant patients. I think uh, OB is another growing uh, area for, uh, uh, for whole blood. Uh, they have uh, started that program up in uh, Pittsburgh now, which is uh, going well for them, uh, as I understand, through Mark Gazer. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think that I think there's plenty still to do. By the time this gets published, the holiday will be over. But, but for us, it's Wednesday and we're getting ready for some smoked turkey, some stuffing, some green bean casserole. Yep. I hope everyone has a safe and happy holiday. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, 
Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.